Right, and we go on. We go on air as Eugenia's microphone completely collapses in front of her. She's going to put the whole show hanging under that. Look, when we ring Jen very shortly, we're going to go only talk very briefly at the start because we've got a full-on program, and our first guest is going to be Jen Hargraves from Women with Disabilities, who's going to talk to us about a recent two-month trip she took to Britain, Scotland, and Sweden on a scholarship to look at issues with disabilities. And and we have a special guest in the special studio. Naomi Cheney's here, who's been coordinating the special broadcast day for International Day of People with a Disability. It's going to be on December 3rd. Thanks for joining us, Naomi. Which is Monday. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Yeah, that's all right, Naomi. Welcome into the studio. And that was Meg Kimber, of course, saying that. She also turned the microphones on while one one (laughs) collapsed. But it wasn't my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Eugenia's with Chico's over there. I'm Kevin Healy. and We're going to have that. And um, we're also, though, today, and it's interesting, following up our discussion a couple of weeks ago about the devastation to Stony Creek following that fire, in the western suburbs, um, we, Melbourne Waters agreed to come on and talk about what they're trying to do or what they're doing to try to clean up the mess. So, Eugenie, you've spoken to the bloke, haven't you, or talked to anyone? Emailed, Emailed yeah. Colin yeah. Nethercote is coming in. Yep, and mm-hmm. he's some sort of officer there, isn't he? He'll, we'll, mm. he'll tell Ma- us who he is. Manager of Public Affairs. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Wow. That means he's a PR man. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so look, we'll go to Jen very shortly, but a couple of things. I think the, the election, folks... Um, yep. While it was lovely to watch the Liberals get thrashed, and I'm still enjoying watching them tear ourselves apart, um, the the <laughs> Labor see? victory was almost too good, I think. It means that a lot of the things we wouldn't want them to do, like privatise public housing, build more freeways, etc., are going to happen. Uh, and secondly, it costs the Greens a bit too, I think. I mm. mean, And that, that deal in the... Um, I mean, they've only got one in the lower, upper house. I, I hope the Socialists would win in the upper house, mm. but of course, all those deals done so... Very small groups with bugger all votes are going to get up. Yeah. Um, and also, though, you know, a couple of those seats, like Lydia Thorpe, I don't think it was awful that she lost, um, mm. but, but she actually increased her vote, and most of those people did, but the ALP increased them more because the Liberals collapsed too much in that sense. Um, so, so it was due to the Liberal collapse that, you know, a lot of those things happened. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if any other one saying anything else well, about the election. A a, it's a bit of a backlash against the... I'll pour um, some tea while you're talking. Yes, you always do them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> undermines, <laughs> undermines my moment. It steals from my spotlight. Oh, the no, 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 no. no, the spotlight is on you. Or well, maybe it highlights it with the yeah, noising right. of beautiful tea. Would you like a cup? Uh, no, I'm fine. Just that um, my only comment would be that it's a, it's a reflection of, you know, that the... In federal politics, they're saying, oh, it's got nothing to do with us. It's all based on state issues. But I think that's probably not true. And I don't think really... anyone really votes that way, do they? No, they, it's about the they, feeling. They, they look at the party as a whole uh-huh. and go, is that, is that my party? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And some of the seats that they, the Liberals lost or almost lost, like Brighton and those sort of seats, I mean, it, it was really a vote against, not a vote for in those places, clearly yeah. a vote against, because they're not going to vote for a 19-year-old student who turned up three weeks <laughs> earlier, a 71-year-old <laughs> bloke living in an aged care home. Um, <laughs> you know, both almost... Were they the candidates? Both won or almost won their seats, yeah. Yeah, you know. that's, some, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Go Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was the student. There was another seat. Was it Hawthorne or whatever? The other seat with the 71-year-old. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. Um, that was that. Yeah. Look, I just before we go to Jen, I just want to, the only thing I do want to mention this week is that we talk about climate change a fair bit, but clearly it, it, there's places where there's no climate change happening, like the United States. Um, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And, and in fact, their, their president yesterday told us that the, the environment now in the United, United States is better than it's ever been, best it's ever been, ever. <laughs> ever, ever. Best yeah. ever, ever. Did you see the photos and in The Guardian that accompany that article of people like resisting gale force winds <laughs> and wading oh, through floodwaters? Right. But I, I say that because obviously it isn't happening there because he says it isn't, but yep. he knows it is happening elsewhere because um, I don't know if you picked it up, but in Scotland where he has a number of golf courses, he's applied to the local authorities to put a wall next to one of his golf courses. Keep the rising, rising waters out. Because of the rising waters. Oh. Walls are the solution to everything, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so obviously, obviously there is climate change in Scotland, but not in the United States. Yeah. It's almost poetic how just <laughs> determined he is to just believe that whatever he says is true. Yeah, he'll be, he'll yeah. be proclaiming that there's no climate change as he stands with wet feet. Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose to believe that whatever he says is true, but also the fact that absolutely none of it is. I know. <laughs> yes, it is. That's what I mean. It's just like a poetic level of 
weirdness. It is, yeah. it is. Let's go to Jen Hargraves and talk about uh, her trip overseas. Okay. <laughs> Each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability. I want choices and rights. Choices and rights. Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming. Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us. The right to access, education, empowerment, pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom from discrimination and violence. Tune in on December 3 from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on 3CR. And join the fight for the choices and rights of disabled people. <laughs> I was like, that was good enough, yeah? Excellent, done. In the summer, I went swimming in the summer. Yay for summer! Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15 a bottle. And they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Call the station between 9 to 5 on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Then you can drop into our Fitzroy studios to collect before the 21st of December. Small Patch Wine Store is a 3CR supporter. Right, more wine. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> on the line, Jen Hargraves. Jen came back recently from a uh, trip. She went to England, Scotland and Sweden on a scholarship looking at and talking to people about disability issues. Jen works with women with disabilities, been there for many years. Um, Jen, but rather than me talk about it, tell us how come you got to go there? Where did the scholarship come from and um, some of the highlights? Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I put in an application to the Department of Health and Human Services who have an Ethel Temby scholarship. And Ethel Temby was a disability advocate who was very much promoting um, social inclusion for people, particularly with an intellectual disability, because her son had an intellectual disability. And she travelled and brought back ideas to Australia around rights and advocacy and worked to set up STAR Victoria, which is an advocacy service. So I put in an application for that and other recipients of the Ethel Temby Award have been 3CR's very own Liz Wright, who does the show Are You Looking At Me? Um, so it was a great opportunity to be able to go and travel. Yeah. Rightio, and you went to three countries. You were, you were looking at a number of things, including comparing some what they're doing to our NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme here, which is running into some trouble, I think. Um, comparisons there? Um, yeah, I wanted to look at how things changed in a market-based system. So in Sweden, Scotland and England, they've, they're a little bit ahead of us and they're already giving people the choice of um, where they get their services from to a large degree. So I wanted to see how that changed things for disabled people. I particularly wanted to ask if they thought a market-based system was safer or less safe um, because I guess we know disability services around the world have a well-documented history of being unsafe for disabled people, mm. not just in institutions, but also in group homes and other settings. So the project really gave attention to what happens if you add profit into the mix. And um, Naomi was there on the weekend in the other film festival where there was another screening of the fantastic film Defiant Lives. Defiant Lives, yes, Barton. yep. Um, yeah, and I, every time I see that film, it, I, I learn more. It's definitely worth seeing if anyone hasn't seen it because it documents um, the disabled movement's move from being shut in institutions and experiencing all that um, repression and violence to being out in the community. And I guess now we have more in community inclusion, how... How is the community and how are services and businesses making sure that we're safe from economic abuse and physical violence and um, other forms of control? Yeah. Did you find, Jen, because um, 
speaking to disabled people who are in Britain just sort of casually online and that sort of thing, there's a lot of comments on austerity and the impact that that's had on disabled people there. Did you deal with any of that at all? It was overwhelming, the impact of austerity. Um, And I guess with the NDIS, we've got a budget, but we really have to be alert to protecting it because you can see what happens when it gets cut back. We copied the NDIS from the United Kingdom because it was working so well. Um, But now it's actually really quite quite disturbing. So we've got... um, One of the things I, I saw was home care workers in Birmingham striking and they've had a long campaign because their conditions are being cut back drastically Um, and the council is replacing them with um, privatised services and so the privatised services have worse conditions for workers and um, consequently disabled people receive worse services. Um, Mm. So I guess that's a cautionary tale, really, something that we can learn from. It is, yeah. And and what was the um, what did your sort of research find out about that issue of safety and 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 financial profit um, operating like institutions mm. that are operating to make a profit? One of the things that was quite chilling was that for many disability advocates, they hadn't been able to look at that issue. So. Mm what was happening in people's private homes with um, support workers coming in and out wasn't well known or documented. Um, And that's because all the attention of the disability advocacy movement was focused on fighting for bare minimum supports because those were being withdrawn. So um, there were many instances. One example was a woman had been told rather than have um, workers come once or twice through the night to help her go to the toilet that she could spend the night in nappies. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So um, the reality of austerity there is that local governments are choosing whether to collect the garbage or whether to go into people's homes and give them basic supports. Um, and there's a real sense that in if people are waiting very long times to receive supports and really fighting to get those basic supports they need, once they do get them, if something happens to them, if a worker abuses them, they won't speak up because they don't want to lose that service. And just to clarify, are all of the disability support services provided by councils rather than private operators there? Or? No, they okay. also have private operators. So I met with many, many women who... Um, who self-manage their funding mm. and um, are really, really stri- striving and succeeding in the community, receiving, um, so choosing to have workers um, help them in their professional lives or finding workers on Facebook. And uh, when I asked them if something went wrong with their worker, what, what they'd do or where they'd turn to, and they said, oh, I'd just tell them to... They, they weren't coming back to work tomorrow and I'd, I'd look for a new one. So they felt quite... That was a nicer way of saying what you're about to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, yeah, there were many, many people who, um, who were able to hold on to some funding and experience choice and control. Um, and then there was another layer of people who, um, who whose issues were hidden by the struggle for basic supports, yeah. Hmm. One of the things that um, I've learnt because I've been working as a um, programmer support person with Naomi on the Disability Day um, and one of the things that I was interested to learn about as someone who has worked in community services and uh, at disability service providers um, is the step uh, beyond uh, basic care and into pride and self-determination and and things that are more about the social model of disability. Did you look at that? That came up and um, people were really interested in it. It hadn't been a concept that had been well um, promoted in Sweden. Mm. So people were quite fascinated by it. Um, And being new to them... They were sort of at first a bit like, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you yeah. talked about yep. the history of gay 
um, and lesbian pride, um, that made sense to them and it was a little more familiar. Um, but they talked about it not being a culture where you show off. Um, <laughs> uh, but I talked to them about things I saw them doing that were that looked like pride to me. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, so they found that quite fascinating. And in the UK, it was a little more well-known, but certainly not to the degree it is in the US. Or uh, We're so lucky to live here in Melbourne where we've got people like Jax and Carly really promoting the pride movement. Yeah. Yeah. I find um, pride a bit of a complicated one for me personally because with, with my disability, it's kind of like I think it becomes a little bit confusing mm. because when it comes to my actual disability, I'm certainly – it's not something that I feel pride about. It's something that I feel an enormous amount of frustration about. But I think, like, mm. for me, the pride comes from, you know, being willing to actually stand up for myself in a system that is designed to make me fail. <laughs> um, yeah, and really sort of having having the confidence and having the sense of self to actually say, no, I have a right to to equal access to, you know, whatever it is that would provide you with, with access to the community. Um, and I think that's maybe a, a good way of kind of explaining to people if they um, are a bit confused, like why would, why would that be something that you're, that you're proud about? Because I think it's, that's where I think people get a bit caught up. I think that's right. And I think um, I think that infrastructure of of not being ashamed of our disability is important when we do have threats to our support services and rights. Mm -hmm. So um, in the UK, there was an unfortunate um, perception around welfare fraud and people, disabled people as burdens. Yeah, and and they really push that here too in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The lifters and not leaners. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's our counter to that. Um, and look, the, yeah, I think the best safeguard I saw, in a sense, was um, that disabled people are able to talk to each other <laughs> and yeah. um, have a voice in the community, um, build up networks and peer support and accept each other. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that attitude, did it still... Sweden, we know, has by reputation, has a much more advanced social welfare system than most other countries. Mm. Um, was that reflected there in terms of their attitude to people with disabilities? Um, uh, largely, Kevin, yes. Um, in, some, in many places, it was really quite visible that disabled people were out and about in the community mm. and experiencing access to businesses and employment and socialising. Um, but I'm not sure that all disabled people experience the same um, inclusion. Um, just like here, there's there's still segregated settings for people with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a very it's a very different experience depending on what kind of disability you have as well. Um, just I mean, just thinking about the NDIS here. Because uh, I, I have a chronic illness and I'm finding that a lot of people with chronic illnesses are having an enormous amount of trouble getting onto the NDIS, whereas it's it's a bit more of a straightforward process for some others. Um, so that's, yeah, it's something to think about in terms of, you know, we think of disability as one sort of big thing that's happening, but it's actually a very complex thing mm. where people have access to different things depending on their situations. That's right. And um, congratulations on your film premiere on the weekend. Oh, too. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Award winner in the studio here today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> and so, uh, Jen, what um, what happens next with your research? Are you planning any um, further research or, or uh, sharing it with uh, disability providers here, support providers? I will be, yeah. yeah. I, um, I'd, I'd love, as I, as I finalise the findings and write them up, I'd love to share them with anyone who's interested so I'll be submitting a report to government and circulating it and um, doing some presentations yeah and we'll talk to you on the station when it's done as well mm, but yeah. but part of the trip also or part of your what you were doing over there was talking to groups as well um, I think giving lectures or toots or whatever um, how did that part of it go I did I um, I wrote to some professors at King's College in London actually and I said would I be able to interview you and they wrote back and said would you like to give a seminar? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got really nervous. I wasn't even sure what a seminar meant in that context. Yeah, that's great. I, 
I went into a panic and I never actually did get to interview them, but I did give a seminar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, cool. And they were really interested in what was happening here. Um, I talked to them about the work that we're doing to bring disability and feminism together and showed them some of the campaigns about violence against women from Australia that, mm. that they don't have anything like there. That was, that was really interesting. Mm. And also met with um, disabled feminists in the UK, a group called Sisters of Frida, and also Sweden's mm. Women's Disability Forum. Mm. And both those networks run like collectives and with no funding. And I was so impressed by what a strong voice and community they've created. Um, in Sweden, there was a um, blind political candidate, Denise Cresso, who's re really well known. She ran in their general election recently um, for the Feminist Party. Unfortunately, she wasn't elected, but she was promoting a Me Too hashtag around disability um, mm. and um, was really well respected across the community. It was a real privilege to meet her. Yeah, the Me Too hashtag is in that um, just like um, violence and sexual oppression of women, there's like a, a similar shame barrier that stops people from speaking out about having disability if, if it's not visible disability. Is that what that means? Um, she was using the general uh, se sexual harassment concept of Me Too but adding the disability layer on top of that. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a lot about power dynamics, isn't it? When you, um, like someone with a disability is more vulnerable to violence in many ways because of, you know, it might be um, financial disparity or, it, um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's that intersection of, of gender and, yeah. and disability mm. that sort of creates additional risks, I guess. And exactly. statistically additional, mm. yeah. We, we, we look at it too yeah. as um, a, bit, a bit like being targeted, so just as... In those cases we've heard about about workplace sexual harassment, um, you know, the people who have chosen to use sexual harassment have picked their targets in terms of people who have less power and mm. less voice. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, a man in that situation might see that a woman with a disability is additionally marginalised in that workplace or... Um, yeah, right. yeah. They, they might struggle to get another job elsewhere because of discrimination, so they'll sort of stay quiet in order to hold on to a job. Or mm. There's, mm. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, so the people doing the harassment are making quite careful choices about who they're targeting. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All right, that brings us to jobs. There's so many things we haven't talked about. But look, Jen, we're running out of time, but next time we get you on, we'll go into some of those other areas including the operation of the NDIS here itself in Australia, because that's pretty critical to the whole show, I guess. Terrific. It was great talking with you all. Thank you. It's, it's, Thank it you was Jen. wonderful Thanks, having you, Jen. It's been absolutely wonderful having you. Mm -hmm. um, OK, look, thanks a lot, and um, we'll talk to you again next year now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Thanks very much. Right, Jen Hargraves there, who's with Women with Disabilities, and I think well, she's a lot more to say, I think, a bit more mm. next year. So yeah, we'll, sounds like a fascinating... When she gets the report written, because she, she was actually a bit reluctant to come on before she got the report written, oh. but we, we talked her into it. <laughs> and, I mean, the jobs is a good segue to talking about the International Day of People with a Disability and the special mm. broadcast that's going to happen on December the 3rd because exactly. um, mm. that's one of the things that is covered. Um, yeah, you know, volunteering, yeah. employment, stuff like that. Yeah, we'll be talking about the NDIS a bit, uh, especially uh, during during breakfast on mm. December three. So that's uh, this Monday coming up. Yep. Yeah, and the jobs I was going to ask Jim, but we ran out of time. But but one of the biggest difficulties for people with disabilities surely is getting work in this sort of community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's a, and there's a lot a of different problem. reasons for that as well. It's partially discrimination. People are a bit reluctant to hire someone with a disability because they're not thinking about how can I make mm. this job accessible? And it could be simpler than they think it is to actually make a job accessible. Um, for me, like I, I, as I said, I have a chronic illness, so I um, have difficulty finding work that is appropriately part-time, <laughs> um, mm. accessible in that regard, and a little bit flexible in terms of hours. So I think um, yeah. that's that's another barrier that some people face. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and there's there's appalling conditions in, in some areas where people are paid based on they, – they work out what they think their productivity is, but it's not necessarily accurate the way they do the testing. Um, and it's – yeah, and, again, it's, it's a bit of a, a shameful way to pay people, really, when someone's putting in an eight-hour day and they're only getting paid, you know, a few yeah. dollars an hour. We like had a protest at the – you yeah. might have been there – a protest at that place near um, Macaulay Station, the workshop there, a few years ago now, mm, and they were cutting mm. staff and well, they were saying this thing, they were 
packing show bags or something, but mm. Martin Stewart, who's a great campaigner, um, led the campaign. But we went down there, and one of his gimmicks was everyone held a white cane, and we just all joined forces in this great circle of people with white canes mm-hmm. as part of the, yeah. the Bordier visual stuff. Yeah, mm. oh, no, That's great, yeah. yeah. All right, well, our next guest is here. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back in a minute. All right, well, let's thank Naomi for coming in and doing that. Because, thank you, um, Naomi. You, thank you, you for having you, you me. You played a key role in the interview. Yeah. <laughs> Good to have you here. <laughs> All right, so we're back on 3CR and uh, City Limits. Um, and our next guest is Colin Nethercote. He's the um, manager for public uh, affairs at Melbourne That's Water. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah. Good morning, morning, morning um, Colin. And you're coming in today to talk about Stony Creek and the efforts to rebuild. Yeah, the recovery it. after mm. that devastating fire mm. in West yeah. Footscray. Well, it was devastating. I, I, you might be aware I went out about month after the fire with a friend who sort of studies these things and um, had a look at the The damage was just devastating. There's yeah. no question of that. And the question I really wanted to ask on that day, because it was about the time the government announced it was going to spend a million dollars to try to clean it up. You know, even even with a million dollars, what do you do to clean up what happened there? Well, um, maybe the, the easiest way to think about it that'll help your listeners is, is in three phases. is the incident itself. Now, obviously, a devastating fire. I think we're all surprised at the cocktail of chemicals and and content of that warehouse uh, that has found its way into the creek, obviously, because of what the MFB had to do to put the fire out. Mm -hmm. So the first step is is minimise the leakage of those chemicals into the creek. And I can tell you I was out there an hour after the fire started standing next to uh, Stony Creek and the smell of acetone, those volatile Mm. organic compounds that came out of out of the warehouse was just overwhelming. So I really empathise with residents who who went through that and the community that went through it. So there's a whole range of actions that Melbourne Water took to limit the amount of those compounds that went down the creek to obviously do such damage uh, to the ecology of the creek. Uh, 70 million litres of water were pumped out of the creek straight into the sewage system so that it goes down to the Werribee treatment plant and it's properly treated and... uh, Uh, and managed in that way. Buns, hay bales, all sorts of devices that we use to skim out those compounds, to skim out the surface stuff. So a lot of activity all the way down the creek to minimise the impact. And then the next phase is the recovery, which I think we're probably still in at the moment, which is leading into that longer-term rehabilitation. Mm. So our our crews have been out. uh, There's still buns in place skimming out some of the the compounds. 170 cubic metres of contaminated sediment taken out around the fire site itself, safely stored up by the fire site. Uh, working very closely with our colleagues in the EPA to safely dispose of that and take it away for for Mm. proper disposal. Um, And uh, a lot of work that has gone on in Crookshank Park to remove that horrible black sludge that just stained the creek uh, and was apparent everywhere. That was was obvious when I was there. Yeah. 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 Um, So, you know, a lot of work to to make it uh, as safe as we possibly can for the community, although... You know, we know that some of those effluents and some of those contaminants are in those sediments. Mm. Uh, and we've seen, I think, a couple of occasions in the last few weeks where it's rained. And because of the rain, you've seen an increase in some of the smell of the I have to say that people yeah. tell me, um, particularly after the Cup Day rains, that that smell was there for several days again after yeah. that. that yeah, people, it is. People couldn't sit in the verandas and things. Yeah, the difficulty <laughs> is uh, is that recovery phase is we've, we've concentrated and done a lot of work around the Crookshank Park area which is the most accessible to the community. Mm. So the EPA are still saying, uh, even with the sediment testing that they've done recently, and it's encouraging to see those levels of contaminants dropping, um, but they're still there. Uh, And we've done a lot of work around Crookshank Park to remove sediments, scrape out vegetation. A lot of that has to be done by hand. uh, And I think um, the community would have seen Melbourne Water uh, out in hazmat clothing, um, actually removing that sediment by hand, but it's it's still there. And in the areas where you've got slow flow, it gets deeper into the sediment as well, so we mm. have to get to that. But now our attention moves to the area from the fire site down to Paramount Road, uh, which uh, that has taken a lot of planning because it's a very inaccessible area. Now, that's where I think the the, the greatest concentration of those contaminants is, 
Uh, as I said, we've already taken out 170 cubic metres of, of the sediment. There's another 600 cubic metres to come out. Mm. And the problem that we've got is the banks around that industrial area are incredibly steep. Um, mm. It's tree-lined. It's a very complicated place to get into with earth-moving equipment that you can, without doing more damage to the ecology. You've got to take it out very sensitive, uh, sensitively and Although there's carefully. not much ecology left at the moment. I mean, it's all dead, mm. really. But well, uh, interesting. I was chatting to my friends. I, I don't know whether you know that Melbourne Water has a frog census app. So you can download an app onto your... And you can record the noise that frogs make. You send mm. it in to us and we'll tell you what sort of frogs they are. And importantly for us, they're such a good indicator of the health of the environment and the ecology, uh, is we're seeing pobblebunk uh, frogs, uh, we're seeing the common, uh, eastern common frogs. So those are being sent in to us and being observed by our volunteers mm. that are out on the ground in, in the community there. So they're probably survivors uh, of that yes. horrible mm. um, contamination. Uh, but it's breeding season, so it's great that they are out there and we are beginning to see that there is some signs mm. of, of recovery. Yeah, they, well, the person, the interviewer, Steve Wilson from um, Friends of Stony Creek, we spoke to on this program a couple yes. of weeks ago, he was saying that he, you know, they've been working on it for 30 years and they, when they first started, because as we know, all Melbourne's noxious trades, or many of them were out that part of the world, that it was an absolute mess when they started out and it's taken almost that long to get it to a stage yeah. where it was cleaning right up. Um, how long will it take to get back now? Because it's really back to where they started almost. Yeah, and look, what a shame. All of that terrific work and, yeah. you know, the, the, the impact of the plantings that friends of groups have done on the, on the vegetation and the bird life and everything, and then something like this happens is just absolutely devastating. Mm. So uh, the next focus for us is that fire side. That was the question. Sorry, the question was how long do you think yeah. it will take to get back to normal? So I think three months for the fire side at the top. Uh, I think we then work our way down through the other areas, uh, down by Westgate Golf Course, etc., down to whatever. Probably uh, the rehabilitation that we're doing will take between 18 months to two years. Yeah. Now, that's all of the cleaning, whether it's pressure hosing, whether it's sediment removal, all of those, but then replantings. Mm. Um, and doing everything we can to encourage the, the, the ecology. The sea grasses in the Yarra around the bend under, near the pontoon, they've died apparently. I, yeah. I didn't know they were there, but the person who yeah. took me said that was lots of them and they've gone. Yeah, and some um, of the mangroves. Are, how long, your mangroves as well, as well but yeah. how long will it take for that to, to come back to you? Well, the important bit, I think, for, for us uh, working very closely with the councils in the area, at the EPA, etc., is to get in there, remove whatever is died, whatever is contaminated, to create the environment that you can then replant and then nature has to take its course. Mm -hmm. You know, the growth yeah. the growth could take even longer. You know, it could be five years before we're looking at it going, uh, it is substantially back to where it was. Mm. Mm. Um, you mentioned working closely with the council and the EPA. My query is how does that um, breakup of responsibilities work and um, how is that communicated to the people living in the area or working in the area? Yeah, and a, a really good question. This is a real uh, multi-agency yeah. um, task. You know, you've got from the incident itself, you had the MFB obviously leading things exactly. and, and DHHS in terms of, you know, the impacts on the community. And right. now the, um, the multi-agency task force that is managing the re uh, uh, rehabilitation is being led by Maribyrnong Council. Okay. Um, and EPA, Melbourne Water, WorkSafe, uh, even MFB still occasionally while we work around that fireside. So the, there is that interagency uh, work group that meets very regularly um, in order to make sure that the recovery plan. Now, the other thing I, th I think it's also worth saying is, you know, the magnitude of this fire mm. and the magnitude of the contaminants a lot of the agencies that are working on this haven't experienced that kind of mm. that kind of event before. Mm. So as we as we work, we've got a very and I call it a, a very dynamic recovery plan. So there's a really good solid recovery plan there. But you know, almost week by week, we discover something that we have to adapt to. We have to find new ways of working and find the best ways of removing that sediment. And, and do the factories along there or the warehouses? Should there be some compulsion on to have some way of collecting that water rather than it getting into the creek if this happens again? I mean, 
yeah, know, buns or whatever or some, yeah, some water collection way of, of stopping it yeah, getting into the creek. Up, up at the top end of the creek, again, around that highly contaminated fire site, we've still got buns out. So they're absorbent buns that, that absorb those uh, of, you know, organic, volatile organic compounds. Um, there's hay bales out to catch the surface stuff as well. Mm. So uh, the EPA have been up there uh, every time it rains. They, you know, they're right on site and they're checking that there's no further runoff from those factories or from the factory site itself. So that you know they they uh, have confirmed that that is secure. So hopefully, what you're seeing is is every time it rains, is actually it's not a it's a good thing. Is you're getting a really good flush of the creek. Um, getting that stuff washed out um, and as I say encouragingly the EPA is saying that the levels of contaminants in sediments are moving in the right direction fairly quickly. Um, you mentioned that uh, everyone was surprised by uh, what was in the warehouse and there's been I don't know whether you have an answer for this from a Melbourne water perspective but as part of the working group that's dealing with this um, people were unsure about whether the warehouse was being used for appropriate purposes or legitimate purposes and whether there's, uh, you know, is there a way of auditing and checking what's in these warehouses that are in places that are going to affect human and animal, you know, non-human animal life in yeah. the area. Yeah. And, and I know that um, subsequent to the fireworks safe EPA, you know, they've audited a lot of other potential sites of this nature since that uh, fire since that fire right. yeah uh, and i think we're doing so beforehand as well mm-hmm. um and i think i think i'm right in saying that there's still an mfb and uh, and vic police investigation into the fire mm. right yeah. I don't know if you can argue you might want to talk about policy but it, it was self-regulatory wasn't it before i mean it, they in a sense the, the the warehouse owners or the factory owners almost self-regulate what they put what they say they've got in there uh, unless you do audit it on a regular basis, I mean, should there, should there be more auditing in the future to make sure that these places are safe? Probably a question that you need to put to EPA yeah, uh, yeah. And, and WorkSafe. I think, you know, Melbourne Water's uh, real focus is, uh, and again, I was out uh, around about an hour and a half after the fire, and Melbourne Water's been on the ground, I think, consistently doing whatever we can to protect and rehabilitate the mm. creek. Um, that's our that's our major focus. Mm. But I suppose following that up, how how do you prevent this happening again? Then I mean, if if there's other there's other places along there that potentially could do the same thing to the creek, um, I, I suppose you know, we've said up thirty years they took to clean up this one fire's done a lot of damage immediately. Yeah. How do you stop future fires maybe coming in and doing the same thing again after you've cleaned it up this time? Well, the, the, clearly there are going to be a whole bunch of lessons learned from mm. this, as I'm sure, you know, and, and we'll be working very closely with our colleagues in EPA and uh, WorkSafe, MFB, you know, what, what are those lessons and, and what, uh, what can be done in future to prevent mm. this sort of thing? Because ste- uh, stepping back on that and looking at the role of Melbourne Water more broadly, um, I'm, would it be right to say that it's not, it's not a preference that Melbourne Water would be responsible for cleaning up after a private company that's <laughs> caught on fire, you know, um, or, you know, what's the main focus, generally speaking? Because surely uh, as an agency you'd, you'd want that not to happen. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, as, as a focus, of what we would love to be doing <laughs> is to continue to provide some of the uh, some of the highest quality and probably the most affordable um, uh, drinking water in the world, so the growing, rapidly growing Melbourne population, uh, continuing to run a really efficient sewage system. Um, you know, people don't think about those two things until they turn on the tap or they flush the toilet, and, and it's a given that, you know, they should they should have access to those. Um, but also we have a, a major role of ours are the waterways around around um, Melbourne. And, and irrespective of these kind of events, there are challenges. You have such urban growth, such population increase, is keeping those waterways healthy. Healthy waterways, healthy populations, you know, those, those ecologies all linked and it's so important. 
um, and then obviously drainage for stormwater and, and that, that sort of thing. So those are the major focuses of Melbourne Water. And yes, we'd mm. love to be uh, expending all our energies and resources, <laughs> and not cleaning up, and, and not you know focusing well, on. Well, ironically, the, recently there was a, launched a healthy waterway study for that area, wasn't there? And, yes, and, and this yeah. turned up. Yeah, yeah. There's a you know we've done an enormous amount of work in the Yarra recently with the um, the Yarra strategic plan. So I think you know that there was the Yarra Act was passed. We're working very closely with all of the partners down the Yarra on its future health, its future well-being. Uh, there was the waterways of the West initiative that was recently. So, they, you know, yes. all of those important waterways out in the West, whether it's the Werribee, the Maramanong, all of those, mm. is that those are the areas where we want to be having our focus and doing what mm. we can to make sure that they're there and thriving for future generations. Yes, this mm. has all happened again. They just recently launched the waterways of the West, um, set up, a, I think, a state committee to look at it or whatever. Mm. But uh, um, And ironically, this turned up almost immediately. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I, uh, as I say, our focus now, starting in December through till March, is going to be that fire site down to Paramount Road uh, and all the difficulties that we have getting in there, getting access and getting, you know, that enormous quantity, 600 cubic metres of contaminated sediment out. So, you know, I think we're just absolutely focused on, uh, and so empathetic with the local community. I think you know and you've chatted about the advisory committee which is being set up. So mm. there's 15 representatives of the local community. Five of those are actually nominated and elected uh, members. Really pleased to say that we had a community day uh, a couple of weeks ago on Sunday the 18th up at Crookshank Park, which I think was over 300 people attended. Mm. That was terrific. Mm. So we got more nominations for the advisory committee. Mm. So they'll work closely uh, and monitor that recovery plan and help guide that and give their advice to make sure that the community is, is heard. I think the council are running a roundtable with some of the Friends of groups tomorrow night. Um, and I think there are plans afoot for another community day as well in January. Um, and, and look, if, if I could ask uh, and I could highlight the important role not only, uh, you know, the community has in, uh, in supporting us and us supporting the community to rehabilitate Stony Creek as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. If people see things, if they see rubbish, if they see any of those contaminants floating on the surface or in little eddies, that sort of thing, then um, there's a great website that Maribyrnong Council have. Um, you can get in contact with them or just come straight to us or indeed the mm. EPA and, and we'll yeah. deal with that. That brings me to a point. Uh, Sue Vittori from Friends of Crookshank Park, I, I talked, spoke to her last night about it, um, and she was saying that uh, the kids were waiting in it on Monday and that dogs are still swimming there and she was asking why maybe there shouldn't be a fence put up until it's safe for people to go into the water. Yeah, um, the signage up and, and the advice, yeah. uh, if you check out the EPA website at the moment, but also on the signage, which is, and I was out there uh, on Friday last week, and there is a lot of signage up saying, keep your dogs away, don't let them drink, uh, mm -hmm. don't come into contact with it. If you get in on your clothes, you should be taking your clothes off and washing with soap and water rapidly. Mm -hmm. So the advice is to the community is, is just stay away from it from, from the time, for the time being. Yeah. Uh, until the EPA uh, uh, are satisfied that it is returned to a safe level. And the mm. estimate would is for that is months, not not weeks. Right? I think it's months in terms for uh, yes, that sort of that whole it's safe for the community, but for the the longer term rehabilitation is yeah. is is a much longer yeah. period of time. And the point you raised, Meg, about um, you know a private company burning and then the state having to pick up the cost. I mean. Again, I believe the <clears throat> I believe the owner of the warehouse has declared himself bankrupt. I'm not sure that's true or not, but I've heard that. Um, but surely, surely, really, the owners of these places should pay for all this rehabilitation work, shouldn't they? Yeah, look, you know, again, Kevin, is, is Melbourne Water is just focused on on yeah. the rehabilitation work, and uh, I've read in the papers all sorts of things. I'm sure you have yeah. as well. So it'll be very interesting to see how um, the inquiry uh, and the investigations do pan out. Mm. And do you know what the time frame is for that? No, I, d I don't. I think that's uh, you. You could direct that one to MFB and and Vic Police and, mm -hmm. and yeah. others. Yeah, oh, yeah. that'll be good. We'll get them on the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can I bring you to one other area? I was raised with me. Um, um, in 2014, there was a chemical spill in Steel Creek in that area, and it was Nidri near the freeway there, of course, uh, Steel Creek. But um, apparently, at the time, it was promised there was going to be monitoring and a report and. Uh, 
the person from that group tells me that they haven't yet seen a report of that. Do you know anything about that? Or was it no. I, I think the, moving into a territory that's outside your area. It's, it's, it's also before my time at Melbourne Water. So, But, you know, Steel Creek is another really important creek uh, and one that I know th- uh, that we discuss a lot. Uh, I can take that one on notice. I'm certainly happy yeah. to go and do some digging and come back. Yeah, to, yeah. see what happened because, yeah. yes. I mean, it was Helen Vandenberg who asked me to ask you that. So. Yes, I've met Helen several times. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think she terrifies bureaucrats. Oh, her, her absolute passion for the health of the waterways yes. is, is, yes. is you can only admire. And uh, I know that we all really enjoy the, uh, the interaction that we have with her and, and how she bring, you know, helps bring that focus on what really matters and what matters to the mm. community. Yeah. All it's right. true. Did you yeah. have any other requests from listeners? I think we've covered, we've covered most of that, but I, I'm, I'm still I, I'm still interested in. There needs to be obviously more work done. You, you answered it, but um, surely there has to be some sort of legislation that to, to, that can. And this is outside your control, I suppose, because it's policy. But legislation to ensure it just can't happen again and make sure these factories do observe the law, that they do have some sort of catchment if something does go wrong, that, that, that prevents water getting into the creek, those sort of things. Have, yeah, you, you know, know, again, um, Kim, not, not our area, but uh, in terms of the lessons that will come out of this fire, is we'll all watch those with great interest. Is You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier on, we would so rather be using the resources that the Greater Melbourne community give us to look after uh, and improve uh, and retain the quality of our waterways for future generations than dealing with these kind of events. Mm. Yeah, it must be quite frustrating for you as well. I mean, in fact, in fact I, one of the people, I think it was either Sue or Helen, said to me that it must be Sue because she's closer to the scene, that you, clearly the Melbourne water workers themselves are quite distressed by what they're seeing and what's going on. Uh, I, I, you would be amazed the you wouldn't be amazed. The passion of Melbourne water workers for the work that they do uh, in terms of, you know, the, the water, uh, the high-quality water that we provide to the community and everything that that then promotes. You know, you can say it is the essential, essential service, uh, as is the treatment of sewage. So the passion to do that amongst Melbourne water workers is phenomenal. And the passion for the waterways and almost the personal hurt that they feel when something like this happens is we go forward very slowly in terms of improving our creeks and the rehabilitation works and then you can go backwards so quickly like yeah. this mm. so especially uh, in a very very urban environment yeah with um, lots of also a place where they've industrial, dumped, dumped industrial yeah. stuff for years. Yes. yeah yeah um on on that point and this is not a, a creek specific question but one that is hopefully won't be too tricky um just um you know on city limits we talk a lot about urban infrastructure and community access and equality and things like that um is it correct that melbourne is one of the largest cities maybe in the world that is like getting the water that we drink from reservoirs in in the 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 area, the greater Melbourne area? I'm thinking uh, well, like the Dandenongs and... we're incredibly fortunate, and this, I guess, speaks to the foresight of people who came way mm. um, before me at Melbourne Water. Around about 130 years ago, some incredibly far-sighted people took the decision to have protected catchments for Melbourne uh, and to feed the city with pure, clean water. So we're also fortunate that we're ringed by hills to the north and to the east. So most of our rainfall is over in the east, and that's a sort of a progressive thing. We've got the Thompson Dam, which is about 60% of our um, our water reserves up in up in the hills there, in, in catchments that nobody goes in and nobody's allowed to go in and have been protected for over 128 years. So the quality of the water that we get out mm. of those catchments is second to none. And we're one of only two cities in the world that, that enjoy that incredible benefit. Because a lot of cities of this size are now doing things like recycled water. And yes. Or, yeah. or where do they get their water from? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So yeah. we, you know, the big focus for us now with obviously you have climate change, we, uh, yeah. we've we seen a step change in the amount of rainfall and that translates into stream flow into our reservoirs. We've seen a step change since 97. Mm. You'd know far better than I do, mm. you know, the whole millennium drought scenario. So... Uh, you know, there's a challenge in terms of the amount of rainfall that we're getting to replenish our storages. So we have to look and make sure that we use 
all the sources of water that we have available to us mm. as carefully as possible. Um, so capturing more stormwater, using it locally, uh, that sort of thing. But yes, you're absolutely right, recycle water. Mm. At the moment, uh, we provide it to irrigators. Uh, we provide mm. it to new housing developments for garden use, that sort of thing. Um, and the more we do that, the more you take the pressure off the potable water supplies yeah. and, and reserve that for, for drinking. Because it's always a bit crazy to just be flushing good drinking water down a toilet, in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely. Mean, we're yeah. so privileged yeah, like yeah. in terms of globally how much access we have to clean, fresh water that's yeah. healthy for us to drink. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And a, a big focus of ours is doing more with stormwater. The problem with stormwater is, is because, you know, it comes off the urban surface it's contaminated with all sorts of, um, you know, things that you find in a in, in a, a, a growing city. It's expensive to treat. So again, how do we capture that? How do we treat it locally? How do we use it locally um, to take the pressure off? And you know, it it, it can have such a, a benefit to the livability of of what was the most livable city in the world. Mm. <laughs> We've slipped to number two. Oh, well, don't mention that tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> but on that point about flushing water you know, down the toilet, um, we, we mentioned this many times, is there any move to try to change the law so somehow you have to have recycled grey water or something? I mean, well, the creep of purple pipes in, into urban developments and residential developments is, you know, there's a real desire to see that to see that accelerate and make sure that we're using the right quality of water and and the uh, and the most affordable solution for all of those different uh, different needs mm. so um, I'm sure we'll be doing more of that in the future and which are the areas of Melbourne where that water uh, purple pipe network exists at the new moment? developments in the west new developments out uh, out mm. in the east predominantly where you can lay in that infrastructure uh, uh, mm. and uh, to a certain extent you're you're constrained by we have two major treatment plants for for um, uh, the wastewater in Melbourne, one down at Werribee, um, and then over at uh, Bangholm, uh, the Eastern Treatment Plant. So you have to grow that infrastructure from those treatment plants into uh, residential, and there's obviously there's a cost involved in that. Mm. So the closer you are, the more likely you're going to get a purple pipe. Mm -hmm. yes. And maybe this will have to be our last question because we're coming to the end of our time, but um, in terms of the catchment areas, and you mentioned how... Um, climate change is affecting uh, how r rainwater is collected. But another thing that affects those um, catchment areas, from my understanding, is um, deforestation or changes in, in the actual environment because yeah. I'm not um, across the whole science of it, but there's uh, if, if there's like not enough uh, forestation, rain can rainwater doesn't run into these areas or I don't well, know. You, yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. You go back to the, you know, the horrible fires around Black um, Saturday is um, you lose all of those mature trees and then you get an influx of these young saplings and they use, I forget what the figure is, but it's multiples of water that the mature trees. Mm -hmm. So you've got less water actually getting into the ground. Um, the, what we're experiencing at the moment, we've got dry catchments. Mm -hmm. So all the lovely rain that we've seen over the last few weeks is falling on what was dry soil. So it's dampening mm. and wetting down the soil, but it's not running off in the quantities that we would really love into our reservoirs. Mm. Um, so, yes, you know, mature trees, uh, all part of that filtration, all part of that um, ecology that allows us to collect that beautiful, clean mm. um, uh, water. And is there anything that can be done uh, from your end about that? Uh, well, uh, you know the protected catchments, which we uh, we uh, guard very jealously, uh, and just make sure that uh, there's there's a fair amount of um, uh, um, incidences where people access them because they see them as a, a mysterious. I guess I need to go in this, have a look at this. So we would ask people, don't do that. Absolutely, mm. uh, is let's tr absolutely treasure them because, as I say, we are mm. just one of two cities in the world that benefit from the foresight of those people at Melbourne at the Board of Works. Mm. Yeah, right. yes. uh, What's the other city? Uh, I will check. Okay. I will check. We'll, we'll, put, it, <laughs> we'll put it on the website. Another, <laughs> another, one, on, another one on notice <laughs> right here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much for coming in time. today, Colin. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank indeed. you. Okay. Thanks, Colin. Cool. Uh, next week, transport team. That'll be great. Yep. See you all then. Mm -hmm.